Thank you so much for reading the scripture, and thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really a joy um, to be with y'all this morning, and it's always a joy to get to preach from Isaiah. Uh, it's one of my favorite books, uh, and it's also a rare joy to be able to preach to a congregation that has such a thorough knowledge of the context of the sermon text, so good on y'all for going all the way through Isaiah, um, but... Not everyone has been here for every sermon, Uh, and more importantly, uh, one of the big things that I think Scripture teaches us, uh, and Isaiah 28 actually teaches this in particular, um, is that we should keep coming back to God's Word. Um, It's never a bad thing to hear it again. Uh, We never master it. We never um, fully understand it. There's always new things to see, new things to hear, new things to learn, um, new ways for God to change us. Um, So this is all very good job security for me as a Bible professor, Um, but it's also uh, part of what makes our relationship with God so rich. Um, The mystery is never gone. Um, So for a quick previously in Isaiah, okay? So let's go back to the very beginning of the season, all right, to the start of Isaiah's ministry, episode one. Um, Remember uh, that in chapter six, we hear that in the year that King Uzziah died, so King Uzziah, he's the only king that most of the people alive had ever known, so sort of a Queen Elizabeth II kind of deal. Um, When he dies, Isaiah has this vision of the true king, the holy God, And God commissions Isaiah to go and preach to the people. And we probably all remember Isaiah's, you know, really inspiring response, here am I, send me, right? Um, But do you remember what God actually tells Isaiah to go preach? It's not as inspiring. We usually stop reading before we get to this point. Um, So here's what he says. He says, go and say to this people, Isaiah, this is what you're supposed to preach, Listen intently, but don't understand. Look carefully, but don't comprehend. Make the minds of this people dull. Make their ears deaf and their eyes blind so they can't see with their eyes or hear with their ears or understand with their minds and turn and be healed. Not good job security for a preacher, right? Um, Can you imagine God telling Malcolm or Slim, you know, okay, I want you to start preaching to Mosaic in the most obscure, unintelligible way possible. Just keep everybody confused. It's going to be great. Um, no, it's not. It's, it's not a fun ministry prospect. Um, and it's really confusing for us, I think, that this is what God calls the prophet to do and to say to the people, which is why we stop reading and preaching before we get to those verses usually, right? Um, it's confusing. So let's come back to it in, in a bit. So you keep reading the book, Isaiah preaches, Um, and generally, people don't seem to listen to him very much at the time, right? So remember King Ahaz in chapter 7, he refused to follow even the simplest, most basic kind of things that God led Isaiah to to tell him to do. Um, And we know from history that that the kingdom of Judah as a whole pretty much just ignored uh, Isaiah's calls to repent to stop worshiping other gods, to stop living self-indulgent lives, to stop 
using their positions of power to exploit people who are vulnerable, to stop refusing to listen. And Isaiah gives this whole series of angry kind of sermons in chapters 13 to 23 as he tries to make really clear that God is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Judah itself, right? None of these nations are as big and as bad as they think they are. None can do whatever they want without fear of consequences. And then in the chapters you all have just finished, um, Isaiah 24 to 27, he expands this message and he preaches that God is sovereign, not just over all the nations, but over the entire cosmos, the entire universe, including the Leviathan. Am I right? Right. That was last week. Gotta love the Leviathan. Um, God is king. God will bring peace. God will bring justice, which is really good news if you're a just person or if you're suffering from injustice. But it's really pretty terrible news if you're an unjust person, if you're not quite living up to that whole love God, love neighbor thing that God expects of us. Because then the coming of justice means that you get judged. So, you know, there's two sides of this. So by the time we get to Isaiah 28, Isaiah has been trying to cast this vision of who God is and who God wants God's people to be. And like a good preacher, in chapter 28 through chapter 33, Isaiah is going to apply all of this sort of theoretical teaching to concrete, specific, real-life situation. And here's the situation that he applies, okay? The Assyrians are coming, okay? The Assyrians were a power the like of which the world had never seen. And they were really mean, right? Um, I think at this moment, probably, my husband is giving a children's sermon on Jonah, uh, and he brought like a beanie baby, like a worm, to tell the story. Anyway, uh, so he's talking about Jonah right now. Remember, the Assyrians were the ones that Jonah didn't want to go preach to, right? Because they're scary. These are the people who obliterate the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember after King Solomon died, ten tribes split off from the rest, right? Um, In 722, the Assyrians just scatter Israel to the wind, the ten lost tribes, right? History Channel documentaries. Um, These are the people who uh, in 701 are going to march through Judah, laying low all the cities, besiege Jerusalem, and then they're going to decorate their palaces with all these like really graphic pictures of how they killed and tortured and enslaved all the the people, women, children, men. Um, These are not nice people. Y'all get some pretty epic sermons about that in a few weeks, so get excited. The point is that Assyria is a significant threat, and the people are scared, rightly so in a lot of ways. And so in chapters 28 through 33, Isaiah is going to preach a message of comfort. But it's a weird kind of message of comfort um, because it begins with woe. Not woe like stop, but woe as in woe is me, 
literally it starts like that. So each of these chapters begins with woe to God's people because you can't have peace and you can't have justice until the strife and the injustice have been dealt with. And it's God's people right now that are causing the strife and the injustice. So what Isaiah preaches here is that the God who is sovereign over all the nations, the God who is sovereign over the whole cosmos, is dealing with the strife and with the injustice among his people using the Assyrians, whom he will also deal with in time, don't worry. Um, It's a good news, bad news kind of message of comfort, a things will get worse before they get better kind of message. So this is the context, right? This is where you've been. This is a nice preview of where you're going in the next few weeks of your journey through Isaiah, coming soon to a pulpit near you. Um, So let's look at Isaiah 28 itself, which calls us to look at what God is doing and to listen to a story. And I pray that this morning... um, We will look carefully and truly see that we will listen intently and truly hear. In this chapter, uh, a similar story gets told a couple different ways. So one version of the story comes at the very beginning of the chapter. For time's sake, we didn't read it. Um, But verses 1 through 6 tell the story about that northern kingdom of Israel And it's this sad story about how Israel thought it was so beautiful and so rich and so strong that nothing could touch it. But then God sends Assyria, described as a raging hailstorm of death, um, to teach Israel otherwise. Israel is destroyed. But then there's this picture of restoration as well, in which God becomes the strength and the beauty and the riches of the people, in which God brings justice and peace. And Isaiah tells this story to the people of Jerusalem, um, specifically the leaders of Jerusalem, because they're falling into the same trap that Israel did. They think they're so smart. They think they're so powerful. They don't need to put themselves out to care for the weak. They don't need to wait around for God to guide their decision-making. They don't need to listen to the prophets. They don't need to look at the scriptures again. They don't think they need anyone. And so God sends Isaiah to remind them, no, you really do. Therefore, Isaiah says in verse 14, therefore listen to the message of the Lord. He tells them to listen again twice in verse 23, four times if you count the pay attentions. Um, In verse 16, he says, therefore, look. You remember what God called Isaiah to do back in chapter 6? He told him to go preach, tell the people to listen and to look. That's exactly what he's doing here. But what does he want them to hear? And what does he want them to see? Well, first he wants these leaders of God's people to listen to him totally mock them. 
Um, Desiree, you did a great job reading. I don't know where you went, but you did a great job reading, uh, reading it this way. Because in verses 14 and 15, he does that really obnoxious thing that people will do where they try to talk like you, but make you sound really stupid, right? So, um, we'll be fine. We've read a really ignorant treaty with death. You know, it's like they're, he's trying to make them seem stupid. Um, my th- I've got a three-year-old daughter and another one on the way, so here I am. But uh, I've got a three-year-old daughter. She's really into uh, the story of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf right now. Uh, she likes to act out the story with us, um, and she casts us all on our roles. Um, so we all take turns being the big bad wolf um, who huffs and puffs and blows the house down. Um, she loves it, except when she's the big bad wolf, she can blow down your house of bricks. But anyway... I'm not going to quibble with a three-year-old. But that story is what verse 15 here reminds me of. These leaders think they're so safe in their house of straw. But they're trusting in a lie. And it's all going to get blown down by the slightest breeze. Much less the raging hailstorm of death that God says is coming. And I mean, it's always a little unnerving um, to really look carefully at the things we put our trust in. Um, We trust in our investments and our bank accounts. But what happens when our banks start struggling? We trust in our teachers and our coaches and our pastors. But what happens when horrific things they've done start coming to light? We put our trust in our health our physical fitness, our ability to do the basic tasks of life. But what happens when we get a medical diagnosis that changes everything? We put our trust in our education and our training and our experience. But what happens when new situations and new experiences and new voices throw all of what we used to be so certain about into uncertainty. As Christians, we are supposed to trust God and the Bible and have faith, and we absolutely should with all our heart and soul and strength. But what happens when God sends prophets to tell us that what we thought we knew about how God operates and what God wants from us is wrong? That can be really scary. Sometimes we have to change, which is even more scary. We're in a Protestant church this morning because Christians 500 years ago wrestled um, through some fundamental faith questions about what actually saves us. A lot of other things, but I'll let Malcolm deal with that. But um, I'm standing in this pulpit here today Um, as a pregnant woman, (laughs) Uh, because your church wrestled through some fundamental faith questions about what scripture teaches about who can preach. These times of questioning and of listening can be scary, but they're so important because they push us to look to God rather than our own wisdom, to trust God, the person and not just what we think we have figured out about God. 
And that's what Isaiah is really pushing the leaders of Jerusalem to do in verses 16 through 22. Look at what God is doing. It's that good news, bad news thing. The good news is that God is laying the foundation for us. God is building our house of solid bricks and stones that no big bad wolf, even my three-year-old, can ever huff and puff down. Look, this verse 16, look, I, the Lord, I'm laying a stone in Zion, an approved stone set in place as a precious cornerstone for the foundation. The one who maintains his faith will not panic. I will make justice the measuring line, fairness the plumb line. This all sounds really great, right? But remember that to establish justice and fairness, injustice and unfairness have to be dealt with. You have to clear the ground if you're going to lay a strong foundation. That's just good building practice. And just common sense, too. We're, um, we're currently fighting the great fight with my three-year-old about you need to take off your pajamas before you put on your play clothes for the day. Um, in Ephesians 4, Paul, Paul tells us we need to take off the old self, our old sinful habits, before we put on our new self in Christ. And that's essentially what God is saying here, 700 years before Paul. God is just a little more straightforward about how uncomfortable getting rid of the old sin can be for us, especially when we don't necessarily go into that process willingly. Um, He says, hail will sweep away the unreliable refuge. The floodwaters will overwhelm the hiding place. When the overwhelming judgment sweeps by, you will be overrun by it. Whenever it sweeps by, it will overtake you. Indeed, every morning it will sweep by. It will come through the day and the night. Dismantling our old bad habits, getting rid of our old security blankets, overcoming our old prejudices can be painful. I love how verse 20 talks about this, about the uncomfortableness of this process. It's like when a bed is too short for you to stretch out all the way or a blanket is too small to roll up in. Um, so at 411, I've never really encountered the bed too short thing. But um, I am exceedingly familiar with the blanket, not having sufficient blanket for one reason or another. Toddler, husband, one reason or another. Right? Um, so we can see the logic of all this, right? The logic of dealing with injustice before we can have justice. The, deal, the logic of dealing with sin before we can have righteousness, of uh, taking off the old before we can put on the new, of clearing the ground before we can lay a solid foundation, it all makes really good sense. But in practice, in real life, it's a struggle sometimes for us to reconcile um, a loving God working through a process that can be uncomfortable and even painful. Our health can suffer, our relationships can suffer, our finances can suffer. Isaiah's message to these leaders of Jerusalem 20, what, 2,700 years ago? Is this, no, how do you say that? 2,700, 2,700? I don't do numbers. Anyway, a long time ago, that was, that's uh, essentially an announcement that some of them would die. When the Assyrians come in, that's not, you know, good news. How can a good God let all that happen? 
And Isaiah acknowledges the troublesome nature of it, the mystery of it. Do you see it? Notice in verse 21, he talks about it as um, it's this peculiar task that God's going to do. It's weird. It's alien. It's strange. We don't, we don't really understand it all. And then Isaiah says, okay, listen to another story. Here in verse 23 is where he actually calls his congregation to listen four different times if you sort of play with it, right? You can almost imagine the room being in an uproar. Like people are in a panic at this news that he's just, you know, dropped. And he's trying to settle them down. Listen, 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 listen. And when he gets them quiet, he tells them this story. It's a parable. You know, we know these best from the New Testament. Um, Parables were Jesus's favorite way to teach, right? Remember short, made-up stories about shepherds or coins or Samaritans, the parables. Um, I love the parables. Uh, And I like to say that Jesus learned how to teach this way from his daddy because God uses parables to teach all through the Old Testament. Um, You might have had a sermon on one back in Isaiah chapter 5 because he tells you get this song parable about a vineyard that Jesus is actually going to take up and use to tell a story about the wicked tenants. So in Isaiah 28, 23 through 29, we get another one of these parables. And like so many of Jesus's parables, this one's about farming. Any of y'all gardeners? Like you like gardening? Yeah? I love plants a lot. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to make them work totally in central Texas. I'm from the south where it rains. Um, (laughs) But wherever you're doing the farming, you have to plow, you have to prepare the ground before you can sow the seeds, right? Especially in Waco with the clay soil. Um, But a farmer doesn't just keep plowing forever. At some point, he he stops breaking up and turning over the earth so that he can actually plant the seeds. Disruption gives way to growth and life, and fruit. So in this story, in this parable, there's different types of seeds too, right? And the farmer plants each one in its own way. Some types of seeds you can just like scatter over the prepared ground, and they, you know, they'll do fine. Others need to be carefully planted in rows. Um, My grandparents uh, we're farmers in Kentucky, and uh, I have a lot of memories of uh, planting pumpkins with them in these giant fields. And so my grandfather would ride ahead in the tractor and plow, you know, the rows. Um, and then we would each spread, you know, we'd spread out and each take a row with our bucket of pumpkin seeds. And you would drop, you know, you would drop a few seeds in, and then you'd like shuffle to cover them up and then move to the next, and you'd shuffle to cover them up. And you'd sort of go like this for acres and acres and acres. It was great. No. Um, so different seeds you plant different ways. And you harvest different plants in different ways, too. Um, we picked those dang pumpkins by hand and hauled them across to the flatbed trailer. Um, but there are amazing machines now that can harvest other kinds of plants um, with much less back strain. Verse 27 um, turns to the threshing process. Uh, for the seeds that Isaiah's farmer plants. That's how you get the seed or the grain out of the the husk, the shell. So small seeds, it says, you got to thresh them by hand or they're going to get lost in the process. Bigger seeds, you can, um, they would 
pull a, a big heavy iron um, sledge, threshing, threshing sledge over them and crack the seeds, right? Um, without damaging the, the actual grain inside. So this parable says you've, you've got to deal with different crops in different ways. Uh, you can't just plow forever. You can't keep threshing forever either. At some point, you've got to stop and make your granola. Um, what's great about this parable is that no one is actually 100% sure of what Isaiah is really trying to say here. I mean, the story itself makes sense, right, about, um, but about a farmer and farming. But how exactly it connects with what Isaiah has been preaching about Jerusalem needing to be overwhelmed is a little ambiguous. Um, is Isaiah meant to be the farmer who's breaking up the earth of Israel and Judah so that new good things can emerge? Maybe. I mean, this, the parable certainly reminds us that God's work in creation often involves destruction that leads to life. It's like forest fires, you know, can be really dangerous and painful, um, but they're ultimately good for the forests. Jesus makes this point in John 12, right? Remember he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm a Baptist, um, and in my tradition, the, the whole picture of baptism, believer's baptism, is an image of dying, right? So as Romans 6 says, you're, you're, you're buried with Christ in baptism, you go under the water, you die. And only then are you raised to walk in newness of life. Maybe the story is trying to remind us that there's a time and a season for everything. A time for planting, a time for pulling up, a time for being comfortable, a time for being uncomfortable. Maybe it's teaching us that God has different ways of working with different people, different of his children at different times. But God always knows exactly what he's doing, even when it seems weird to us. Maybe it's all these things and more. The story keeps us questioning. It keeps us going back to Isaiah's sermon, mulling over what he has said, what God has said, and what's going on in the world. It keeps us asking questions. And I think maybe that's a big part of the point of it. Remember God's commissioning of Isaiah back in chapter 6? He said, go and say to these people, listen intently, but don't understand. Look carefully, but don't comprehend. We listen to and look at this parable and don't fully understand or comprehend it. So we keep listening and we keep looking at God's word. We keep trying to learn to know better the God who speaks and the God who shows I think it's really interesting that in Matthew 13, when the disciples of Jesus ask him, you know, why are you teaching in these parables all the time? Um, and they ask him this, incidentally, after Jesus tells a parable about a farmer sowing seeds. Uh, Jesus answers using Isaiah 6. He says, this is why I speak to the crowds in parables. 
Although they see, they don't really see. Although they hear, they don't really hear or understand. What Isaiah prophesied has become completely true for them. You will hear to be sure, but never understand. And you will certainly see, but never recognize what you are seeing. For this people's senses have become calloused, and they become hard of hearing. And they've shut their eyes so they won't see with their eyes or hear with their ears or understand with their minds and change their hearts and lives that I may heal them. Like Isaiah was, Jesus is preaching to religious leaders, community leaders, people who grew up in church, who had heard all the stories, who had learned all the verses. They thought they understood. They thought they knew what God wanted. In Isaiah 28, these religious leaders stop looking and listening to God because they think they've got it all figured out. They had heard it all before. They were wise and strong and had built themselves a house of straw. But Isaiah, like Jesus, reminds us that we don't actually have it all figured out. That we should never stop looking and listening to God's word. Our wisdom comes from God. Stories keep us humble because they keep us asking questions. Isaiah's parable might be a bit confusing generally, but what he says pretty clearly in it and says twice is this. Any knowledge that the farmer has about what to do when comes from God. Look at verse 26. His God instructs him. He teaches him the right principles, the judgments, the laws of agriculture. And listen to verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of heaven's armies who gives supernatural guidance and imparts great wisdom. In a lot of ways, um, I don't know that Isaiah 28 is supposed to be about giving us answers to our questions. I think maybe it's more about reminding us to keep asking the questions of the God who is our teacher to keep listening to the Father who tells us stories, to keep relying upon the Spirit who helps us truly hear and truly see, to remember that God has laid a solid foundation, a solid precious cornerstone for us in and through Christ Jesus, so that we have this foundation from which to ask our questions. We have a lot of questions. But we know that we have a God who can take them, who wants to take them. A God who loves us enough to join us in our suffering, even when, and maybe especially when, we don't understand it. A God who loves us enough to discipline us so that we don't grow up to be brats and keep hurting each other in our selfishness. A God who has promised to make all things just and right and new. A God who died and came to life so that destruction is never the end of the story. 